Tonight we will be reading from John 14, 15 to 21. John 14, 15 to 21, as well as Acts 1, 1 to 11. John 14 can be found on page 1146. And Acts 1 can be found on page 1156. We'll also be reading Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18, as we go through the Apostles' Creed and what we profess as our faith, and particularly the words, He ascended to heaven, and what that means. Before we read, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and ask for an understanding of an important, momentous event, and yet one that we often forget, one that we don't necessarily place a lot of time to, to meditate on or to think of and in, in its significance. And we pray, Lord, that here this evening you would help to change that, that we would be those to highly value and regard what we profess here, that you ascended to heaven. How this is a momentous occasion, not only for you personally, but for us, those who in the early church saw you arise, and we who still believe and see that in your ascension is our hope, and in your ascension is our victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 14, verses 15 to 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's as far as we'll read in John 14. And now we'll read Acts, Acts 1, 1 to 11. We include the beginning here in the introduction to the, God, to the book of Acts as we see its purpose and where Luke will start in explaining what is the proof of our faith. Acts 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time Restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now we conclude our readings by reading a summary of what, Lord, what the Lord's Ascension means in Lord's Day 18, which can be found on page 218 in your Forms and Prayers book. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven, that Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead? But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised? Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. But in his divine majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that he has, that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. People of God saying goodbye even for good reasons, isn't always easy. I was reminded of this, of a certain time when one of my, old, my oldest brother was getting married, and it was a, a joyous day, it's a celebration. And this is a vivid memory for me, because I remember leaving the reception, saying goodbye to him, and, and heading off with my brother, and we were driving home, and I remember at that time thinking, well, this is sort of strange, we were just at a party, we were just celebrating, we were rejoicing. But now on my way home, I'm, I'm strangely sad. I'm saddened, and, and the thought and reason I was sad is that I knew he wouldn't be there when I got home. I knew that he had moved away, he had moved on. And it's, it's what you pray for, it's your desire. And, then, and life presents many of these certain situations, these circumstances, Parents understand this. Well, sometimes, sometimes parents understand this when they're sad to see their, their kids depart and, and leave the home. When, when they are sad yet happy, they're happy that their kids are growing up. They're happy that they're, they're off to college or they, they've gotten married or they're moving away for some job. That these are things to, to rejoice in and yet bring that sadness. We're used to that. And yet, this bittersweet thinking, I, I can't help but wonder if that was in the apostles, the disciples' own minds, as, as they come to the ascension of the Lord. A joyous occasion, 
one that should be celebrated, one that's great and means for them more than they, they could even understand or know. This is, it's victory, it's enthronement of their, their own disciple, their, I mean, their teacher, their rabbi. It's his enthronement after he was raised from the dead. And yet you wonder, are they thinking, have we lost him again? We lost him to the grave, we thought, and he rose. In these last 40 days, he's been with us. He's been teaching us. And oh, to have been a fly on those walls, to have heard what went on, how he, they were taught. And yet here he departs. And for them, it seems as if this is it. The final departure. And as he left us, as Jesus left the church and, and has removed himself from that situation, right when it would seem that they need him almost more now than what they did, he, he's given to them a great commission. He's given to them orders to go out unto all the earth and, and conquer it, to spread the kingdom, to make disciples of all nations. And they're hardly even a band. They, they're this small number, and this is when he leaves. Is this a loss for them? The title of the sermon is that we are not orphans. We are not left as orphans. Jesus has not abandoned us. He had promised that to the disciples in John 14 before the events of the cross and resurrection and everything that would take place. He wouldn't leave them as orphans then, and he, he wouldn't leave us as orphans now. And so the ascension then properly understood is, is the way to, to receive joy and hope. And it's something that we often don't think of. It's something that we don't realize how momentous it is. Not many saw the resurrection take place, but they did see Jesus ascend, and that was for their benefit. That they saw him go up, they, they saw him rise, they saw him depart to heaven, to go reign. That's astonishing. And it's astonishing we can gain an appreciation, a joy in just understanding what Jesus did. Jesus' ascension is a triumph in a stronger sense than his resurrection. What do we mean by that? We mean in his ascension, it's the full fruit of the resurrection. It's the goal. He is ascending to the Father. He is accepted. And as he enters, as he enters there, he enters bearing our names to the Father. He triumphs over the whole created earth. This is the victory procession, the victory celebration. This is in ancient times. The armies would go out and they would conquer. And when they would come back, there would be this procession. And the cities would go out and they would join the throng as it came back in a conquering way, as they led their captives and their train of captives. Well, this is that moment for Jesus. He ascends. Or I, I should say this is the partial fulfillment of that moment. Obviously, the, the true one will come when he comes his second time to, to, to conclude the world, to bring about the judgment. But this is that in partial form, in a partial way. And it Jesus triumphs over all the hostile, demonic, and human forces. In it, he shows that he's robbed them of their power and of their strength. In it, he shows that they're helpless and they're bound to his chariot of victory because he's going to take his place in heaven. He reigns. He's ascended. Colossians 2.15 describes this victory of God through Christ. He that is God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus triumphs. And this is our Lord and he has ascended. And our forefathers in the faith, the, the first Christians, saw it happen. 
The second Adam triumphs. The second Adam has entered that day of atonement, the true day of atonement. Hebrews picks up on this imagery. The ascension is really the the high priest entering the Holy of Holies. But now it's not just to enter to make atonement that has happened. The high priest now is entering the Holy of Holies to reside there and bringing us in the process. Opening the holy place, the most holy place to all of his people, he ascends. The echoes of all defeat are drowned out in the victory of Jesus and his ascension. And it matters. It matters to you right now. It matters to you sitting in the pew. It matters to you when you take your walk and you're, you're outside and today's not the best example, but it's a sunny day and it's, it's a great day and you walk around and you, you, you enjoy the creation and you think, whose creation is this? Who's the one on the throne reigning? And it's your Lord. And beyond that, it's a man. Our man. Our triumph. And we don't say our triumph lightly. Jesus' ascension is our triumph because it is the ascension of man to the throne. Now, obviously, Jesus is the Son of God, but he took on our flesh. He is fully man. He is fully us without sin fully representing us, taking the throne that Adam, the first Adam, should have occupied, who who should have achieved what the Father had called him to do, what God had called and created him to do, and he failed, but Christ succeeds. It's mankind's triumph in the ascension through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He takes his proper place. He's wrenched control from the world, from the devil. He's established his kingdom And the devil is too afraid, too powerless to withstand him. How excited do we get when uh, one of our candidates might win? It sort of sort of infuses hope into you, and and the reason why is you place a, a, a bit of trust in this candidate most of the time, and you think maybe they'll they'll fix things, maybe they'll help things, maybe they'll be able to use their power and authority in such a way to right what is wrong, right? That's what we say about these these men and these sinful men. We, 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 we pray and hope that this is what they will do in their times in office. How much more so is the power of our Lord and our hope bound up in Him. You see, we get excited if we wake up the next day, or perhaps some, some of us may stay up all night trying to see the election results and what have happened. But if you're like me, I, I usually put that away and go to bed and wake up and say, I wonder who's going to win. And then you check the news and it was, oh, if it's your guy, now you're, you're happy, you're excited, you're hopeful. How much more so is in the ascension, Jesus has taken his throne. But... I can only imagine what the disciples thought as they lost the Messiah for the second time. And as they think, well, our our candidate, our guy, has left us. And yet we read from the book of Acts as well, because the book of Acts shows truly what this means. You see, we are not left as orphans. We are not left alone. And when Jesus, as soon as Jesus occupies the throne of heaven, he is powerfully present with his church and with his people in such ways that sort of eclipse what had happened with him on earth. Acts shows us that there is no loss to the church with Jesus on his throne. In fact, it's a gain. Jesus reigning 
Through his power and to the church, he sends his spirit, and the spirit comes and works through the church, and the church triumphs. And there's no, there's no even loss of beats with the, the might and power that, uh, that occurs. Through such men like Peter and through, and Paul and the apostles and the early church, you see miraculous things happen to such degrees that it's almost like Jesus hasn't even left in what they do. The apostles often are spoken about in Acts in such ways to tie them to Christ and things that he had done. People need to just touch the apostles' clothes and they, they're healed. They raise those from the dead. They miraculously escape from prison. They do all this type of miracles that Christ himself did. That's not to diminish Christ. It's to show that in his ascension and power, look what he's done for the church, to his people. By worldly accounts, that should have been the end of the church, shouldn't it? Jesus was all they had. And him being removed from the earth should have just, it should have just petered out. It should have just fallen away. But it didn't. It didn't because his reign and rule matters. Because he hasn't left his people as orphans. He's powerfully present. Acts doesn't show it. But as Jesus ascends and is lost from view, Daniel, written so long before this time, sort of pulls back the clouds to show us what did happen. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man arising and going to the Ancient of Days, and it says that to this Son of Man, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This victory matters, and it gives to us joy. How much joy came to the, the, the nation when there was victory in Europe in World War II, or victory in Japan, and, and the rejoicing that followed. The war there had ended, it was done. And that the bloodshed and everything else was concluded. Now, we are still in the time of, of war and battle. We are still the church militant. But we have received in the ascension of Christ that victory. And it's that victory that matters to you when you ride to church. And when you ride to work. And when you do your schoolwork. Because what are you doing? You're serving your king. And he's not a dead king. You're serving your king who's on his throne, who sees all. And so everything that you do is for him and for his kingdom, for his rule and for his reign. How important it is that we understand that he took up the throne, sent his spirit, and gives us the gifts that come with the spirit's indwelling. A significant aspect of Christ's ascension is that he does send the spirit. And in fact, he wasn't able to send the Spirit in this way until he had accomplished all that the Father had called him to do. And so, in, in, in this way, he's actually gained the right to now send the Spirit, that the Spirit would come and fill the church. One pastor helpfully called the Spirit, heaven itself coming to earth. It's a magnificent imagery of he who dwells in us at the Lord's own request, at the Lord's own sending. We're not orphans. We're not alone. You're not alone. The church isn't alone. The church is, is the most powerful entity on this globe. It's the church. 
Because we have the most powerful king. We have the most powerful ruler, the most powerful army of the saints. The church is strong even as it bears its cross. Nothing will destroy it, nothing will beat it out. It's because Christ is on the throne and he reigns. And then we see in the Lord's days, questions and answer 47 and 48, sort of taken aside, sort of step aside. We're, we're just briefly going to go over the, the issues that, that, that are being talked about here and, and more focus our attention on the last question and answer. But questions and answer 47 and 48 deal with that question. And there's a pastoral concern behind it. The pastoral concern behind it is answering the question, are we left alone? Are we orphans? Jesus promised to be with us, but if he's in, in heaven and not here, did he abandon us? And so it's answering that question. But it's also dealing with the, deba- the debates that were going on during the time of the Reformation. And this is a direct uh, uh, argument against, it's a direct response to the Lutheran doctrines of what's called ubiquity and consubstantiation. And those teachings are that Jesus, in his human nature, can be present everywhere. See, the Lutherans afford to the, the human nature of Christ. They, they take a divine attribute, and that's everywhere present, omnipresence, and they say that, that his human nature is now able to be everywhere present. This feeds into their understanding of the Lord's Supper, because they don't say that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ like Catholics, but they would say that the body and blood are in, with, by, and under, around the elements, and that the body of Christ is really there. And so there's these debates that went on, and this is the Reformed response to it. It is saying we don't believe that Christ in his human nature is everywhere present, nor can he be, because it's a human nature. Human natures cannot be everywhere present. And so his human nature is in heaven. That is where Christ, or, or Jesus Christ's body, is. And so it's, it's professing that, and then it's responding to, to those then who would say, yes, but what about his divine nature? Are we limiting his divine nature there? And the response is, no. And why is that? It's because his divine nature is everywhere present, thus including here on earth as well as in heaven with his body. Because the, the divine nature is not limited to any space and is everywhere, he can be in his divine nature here in earth and in heaven with his body. That's the simple, logical working through it. And it's significance to how we understand Christ, how we understand the doctrine of Christology, and so the Lord's Day is dealing with that here. It's, there's a pastoral concern there as well, that has Christ not kept his word? And he has. He has because he has, he's present with us in his divine nature, and he's present with us through his spirit, the Holy Spirit who he sends. And so that's the, the, what's going on in questions and answers 47 and 48. But we look now to question and answer 49. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? And the Catechism gives three helpful points for how this is of benefit to you here First, advocacy. He is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his, in the presence of his Father. Hebrews 9.12 reveals that entering heaven with the satisfaction of his blood secures our eternal redemption. He is taking his place as our advocate. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There is a blessing of his ascension. He is there to help all, and he is one who's been tempted in every respect as we are. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to Jesus, to, to the throne of God, knowing we have our advocate there. He is quite literally present before the Father. That's where he is. He is our advocate. What does this mean for us? It means when you come to the Father, you have a mediator who understands you and understands what you faced, who understands how you have failed, who bore burdens himself, though without failure, though without sin, he can relate. There's nothing worse than bearing your heart to someone who hasn't gone through it, doesn't get it. And we are all in our creaturely limitations faced with that. We don't understand what someone has gone through fully, but Christ does. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. And what, that, what does that mean? It means we don't come before God and find a, a deity whose arms are crossed in anger and frustration. We come one, to one willing, ready to accept us through the advocacy of his Son. Jesus also isn't the sort of advocate or mediator that we see like in Moses who would fall down before the Lord, who would prostrate himself, and he would beseech the Lord, asking from a position of pure grace, pure weakness. Lord, do not do what these people deserve. Do not put them to death. What would this say about you and your promises? He was beseeching them. He was, he was asking for mercy and grace. It was unmerited favor is what he sought, but that's not Christ's advocacy. Christ's advocacy is merited. He is our advocate saying that this is what he is owed. He's earned it. Be with them. Forgive them. I have earned this. This is mine to give. This is mine to ask. And even in that sense, demand. And the Father is not, is not, is not afraid to give it. He's not upset to give it. That is his desire as well. That's what we see in our advocacy in Christ. Second, we see a, a sure pledge. A sure pledge. What's a pledge? A pledge is a promise. A promise, a, a down payment, an assurance. What is this pledge? We have our own flesh in heaven. As a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. We talked about this a little bit before, that analogy of a train. If Jesus is the engine of the train who arrives in the train station, you can understand he is there, he's in heaven, but that means the rest of the train will be there as well because by virtue of the fact they're connected to the engine. That's what we're saying here as well. It's, we could also illustrate it in this way. If, you're, if you are to, I don't know, the, you're at a, a sporting event or you're at a, a concert or you're, you're needing a seat saved and, and someone goes in first to save a seat. Or maybe the best example is uh, the airlines. I guess it has to be Southwest. I'm not sure if other airlines do the save your seat, the first you board. So it's like going on to a Southwest flight and, and one who has an earlier boarding position says, I will get on board first and I will save your seat. And that's your pledge. And the assurance is that your, your loved one, your friend, your family member is on the plane, your, your seat secure. You have a place there. That's what it means that Jesus is in heaven now. Our place is secured and the importance that it is our flesh. Humanity is in heaven through Jesus. Humanity is there. A sure pledge that we ourselves will be there. His very presence demands our presence. 
And third, the Catechism says, our helper, that we will, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. So notice this beautiful imagery. You can almost think of it as a, as a grand exchange. Earth, humanity, we should say it more that way, humanity has ascended to heaven in Christ. And heaven has descended to us in the Spirit. Our place is secure there. We're, we're, we're a fixture there in Christ our flesh and blood. And then he, in correspondence, sends his spirit to us, and so heaven has descended down into our hearts as well, which means you experience in your life the fruit of heaven itself. The eternal reign of God in heaven is with you in the spirit. And this is why, as the book of Acts shows as well, we have not lost anything. With Jesus' ascension, we've gained. The spirit is now here in each of us, strengthening, sanctifying, uniting us to Christ, working in us. Look what the Catechism says here. He is a, he's a pledge, the Spirit as well as a pledge, sort of that uh, assurance and down payment of what God has promised. He sends his Spirit that we would understand and know that. But then see the, the blessings. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. That's what the Spirit does for us. We seek the things above. The reign of Christ and his ascension means that the church has that power, and it does seek the things above. Most people are very quick to point out the failures of the church. And the way it's characterized at times is to, to paint it in such a way that it's, it's, it's almost one of the worst institutions, is the way people like to think of it. And yet that's not the case for the true church and the true people of God. The, the true church is a blessing that has come to this world that the world has never known before. The church has brought a message and a gospel that has affected even the understanding of morality wherever the gospel and the church have been. The, the nation itself was blessed. Are there dark marks in the church's history? Certainly. There are sins there, but what we fail to realize is that through the Spirit's work, the church and the saints have been the greatest blessing to earth outside of Christ. Think of that. To what we belong in the true church is the greatest blessing to this world outside of Christ. Or even we should refine that. It's not outside of Christ, it's through him because we're his extension, his arm here on earth. The Spirit dwells in us. And so we see the blessing that the church brings. That's on a grand level, but we see it in us personally. Don't diminish the, the, the risen and ascended power of Jesus in your own heart. Don't diminish the Holy Spirit and what he's done for you and in you. It's masterful and it's beautiful what he works. And though at time we might seem it's so slow, it's, it seems so agonizingly slow, look how you grow in your faith. See the sins that you once struggled with, which perhaps aren't, it's not like they're ever gone, they're not, but ones that you, 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 you show much, so much more strength in defense and fighting against. That's the Spirit's work in you. 
Think of the times when you have been afflicted, or maybe you're afflicted now, and you will not turn from the Lord. No matter how hard and no matter how much it hurts, that's the Spirit's work within you. It's magnificent power. And it's displayed in every saint. God is not, has not lost his, his count of his people, nor does he neglect one over another. He is working mightily. A tapestry is a great illustration of this. A tapestry is made of how many thousands and thousands of just threads and colors. And in the work that God is doing, his people are those single strands and a single thread. And yet, the, the complexity of the tapestry and how magnificently it's done, it's how each and every one of those threads works together in such a perfect way to display this picture. And it's a grand picture that the Lord is doing, and each of us are those threads. And each of us has that part to play in that little point of that little section of the tapestry. And God works in us so that we are his church, weaved together to show forth his reign and power, and it's by the Spirit's work. I hope that this is an encouragement, an encouragement to all of us, an encouragement to you that Christ's ascension is our own in that way. His power reigns in you right now. You are not alone. Your king is with you, and he reigns forever. Amen. Let's go to that king in prayer. Lord Jesus, it is not lost to us that even as we speak to you right now, this prayer is heard in heaven itself, is heard in the presence of God the Father. You hear it and you know all. Nor is it lost upon us that at this time we worship you and we pray to you through the power of the Spirit himself who works within us. And when we phrase it this way, we, we wonder, how could the church fail? And how could we? You are accomplishing everything that you have set out to accomplish. Your reign is secure, and our hope is bound up in you. And, and far, far from the type of hope we have for earthly rulers, we have a sure and firm faith, a sure and firm conviction that your reign is fixing things. Your reign makes things better and ultimately will perfect even us. We praise you, our ascended King, and we thank you for the advocacy that you bear to the Father. We thank you for the Spirit who you sent we thank you that you are a sure pledge even of what we do receive and what we await. We ask this in your